Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right. This is our hot question of the day, and it has to do with a topic we were just discussing with Gord McDonald. So in the news, we've heard that some radio stations in Quebec, particularly in Montreal, three major radio stations in Montreal, have decided they are going to stop playing Michael Jackson songs as a result of what we've learned in that Leaving Neverland documentary that aired the last couple of nights on HBO and all the allegations of abuse that are in there. So we thought... In light of that, in light of what you're hearing, and in light of the documentary, you know, and, and all the things that you've read and heard, do you think that's the right thing to do? Like, should radio stations pull Michael Jackson from their playlist? Do you say, yes, his credibility is gone, I don't want to hear that music anymore? Or do you say, no, no, the music has nothing to do with it, still want to hear that? So let me know your thoughts on this. It's a really interesting debate, because as Gord pointed out, if we start doing it for this, do we do it for everything? Do we revise our look at music history and decide there's people that we're just not going to listen to anymore? Because that's a lot of people who would then have some troublesome issues in their past. This, of course, stands apart. This is a really troublesome issue. What do you think? You can email me, simi at cknw.com, and you can go online to uh, my Twitter account and vote there. It's simisarah980, and let us know the way you're feeling on that one. All right, well, let's talk more of the fallout in perspective from what we saw happen yesterday, where one of the prime minister's most trusted ministers, the president or was the president of the Treasury Board, Jane Philpott, resigned from cabinet. And in her statement, she cited the ongoing fallout from the SNC-Lavalin situation. So Jane Philpott spelled out her reasons for quitting in an open letter to the prime minister yesterday. It was very revealing. And if you got a chance to read it, then you know what we're talking about here. She says she has lost confidence in the way the government has handled the matter. So everybody was waiting to hear what the prime minister would say about this. And in a speech in Toronto last night, he did take a moment to talk about this controversy. This matter has generated an important discussion. How democratic institutions, specifically the federal ministry and the staff and officials that support it, conduct themselves is critical and core to all of our principles. Meanwhile, there's a new poll that is exclusive to Global News that finds 62% of Canadians believe that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has lost the moral authority to govern because of this SNC-Lavalin situation. This was an Ipsos poll. It found that more than half of the people who responded believe that Trudeau should resign, with the majority agreeing there was political interference. Most respondents are even going so far to say that the RCMP should now investigate the matter. Meanwhile, another 67% are choosing to believe former Attorney General Jody Wisson-Raybould over the Prime Minister. So what, if anything, could be done to mitigate this, pri- this crisis? And 
What can the opposition do to use this to their political benefit? We have our panel back with us this morning to talk about this. Joining us is Elise Mills, Senior Associate at Sussex Strategy, and Maria Dobrinskaya, BC Director for the Broadbent Institute and former co-chair of Vision Vancouver. Thanks to both of you for being back here. Thanks for having us. Last time I started with you, Elise. This time I'm going to start with Maria. That was quite a bombshell yesterday, and I know we keep using the word bombshell, but your thoughts? Well, the bombs keep dropping. I mean, this is uh, the the Trudeau government. The, the Prime Minister has not been able to stop the bleed. In fact, it's kept going. We know that his former principal secretary is going to be um, uh, testifying at the Justice Committee on Wednesday. Um, expectations that he will, you know, try and refute um, Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, or at least provide a different angle. But what we've seen, and I think what the numbers in the poll um, that you cited reflect is a very detailed, very credible testimony from Jody Wilson-Raybould and essentially very surface message boxy kind of platitudes uh, from the Prime Minister. He hasn't addressed it. He's kind of blown by it. Um, Yes, we're protecting jobs. Uh, You know, this is her truth, the way in which they've sort of tried to minimize um, the the interpretation that the former Justice Minister has of what went down or the way that they're talking about it um, uh, as, as, you know, this is something that just happens in government. And and I think, again, as those poll numbers reflect, that's just not good enough for Canadians. That's so true. Elise, what, if this were your client, what would you advise this person to do to fix the situation? Well, I'd begin by telling them that this has grown 45 legs. You could have actually contained it by starting when after Ms. Wilson-Raybould said that she didn't have confidence in the prime minister, an easy way out, not that I find this agreeable to me as a woman, but an easy way out would have been said, you know, Judy, I really appreciate, or Jody, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've served us well, but if you don't have any confidence, I can't invite you back to cabinet or caucus. That would have put her back in the corner, but that didn't happen. He continued to uh, talk high-mindedly and sort of mansplained her. And I, I would like to also say, since the four, the three of us here are women, I want to wish us all a happy Women's Day for Friday, because the second narrative that I want to bring up starts for me uh, this morning, or uh, sorry, last night, when all my female friends from media, liberals, NDP, conservatives con- contacted me, I contacted them, and we went, power, power for women. Because you can't invite feminism in and not read the back of the pamphlet. Yeah. You must know what it right? is. And well, so, yeah. so I mean, today, I have to say this, because I think this is going to send Maria and you into a bit of a tailspin. <laughs> One, a, a very well-known liberal strategist that I know was on a well-known network this morning, mansplaining his way through. He said that both the, both uh, Ms. Philpott and Ms. Wilson-Raybould had obviously incredible experience from the sectors they came from. But what they didn't understand was the art of political compromise. Oh, you've got and that me. they didn't understand how politics worked. And I, it was, uh, I get up very early. It would have been about 6.15 and I was ready to scream. This is, yes. And he said, it's not about girls versus men. Well, correction, sir. We are women. We are not girls. And this isn't about oh women versus men. shaking our heads. So this is why the Prime Minister's team and even his female, his Minister of Small Business was out today talking to to Canadian press and local BC stations saying that um, that she was disappointed in their feminism. Well, even Bill Mordeaux yesterday, the finance minister, with his response saying, 
Oh, well, yes, of course, Jane Philpott resigned. She's good friends with yeah. Jody Wilson-Raybould. Well, what does that have to do with well, it? Exactly. I mean, I yeah. think we've seen, you know, putting aside, which again, I don't think we can put aside the, the specifics around uh, the SNC-Lavalin case, uh, but this whole thing has been uh, just an exercise in how sexism manifests in, in politics. We've seen this. Jody Wilson-Raybould was described as a difficult woman, um, not, not a, a team, team player. player, you know, yeah. exactly. Her father's pulling the strings. Stubborn. All of the things we heard yesterday around, well, they're, they're best friends, and that's why uh, Minister Philpott did this instead of, you know, this the fact that she was standing on an ethical... Pants. This well, is politics. And, they, and, yeah. and particularly for a prime minister who... Uh, self-identified as feminist. The Liberal Party had what I thought, you know, I'm not a Liberal, but I thought it was an excellent campaign around uh, invite her to run, add women, change politics. I don't think this is the kind of change they were anticipating by bringing all of these these very competent, strong women into the the cabinet. So you can, we'll invite you in and we're going to bring you to the table, but but that doesn't mean we're going to listen to you and you still have to play the game by our rules. So... I've seen, let's talk a little bit about the opposition here too, because the Liberals, man, we could go on all day of the wounds that they have inflicted on themselves. I noticed this morning on Twitter in particular, Maxime Bernier taking shots at Andrew Scheer over his handling of this situation. So how can you even be fighting, how can the opposition be fighting amongst itself you know to what? respond to this? I, I, I don't know if Maxine is even part of my conservative family anymore. I mean, we are similar to the NDP, we're, we're groups of tribes. Uh, but I would say to my conservative men that are talking the way Maxine Bernier is talking is like, stop it. Because this is an incredible moment in what has been 18 months, an 18 month trajectory of women, including myself, coming out talking about the sexual abuse and harassment. I mean, I came out against Tony Clement six months ago. I burst into tears on a national radio station and told my truth, and I didn't get support from my some of my own female colleagues. Yeah. It has been an incredible year, and actually my female relationships are stronger than ever. So Maxine Bernier, you can talk to the wall all you want, but you know, Andrew Scheer made some really good points, and I noticed that quite a few pundits from the media, CBC in particular, said, you know, we thought he had really jumped the shark last week by calling the resignation of Trudeau, but the Ipso poll that we're going to talk about proves that he was right. And I think what he's saying is at least just step down. I I also want to say that the, the stories that the Liberals are talking around, the whole SNC reasoning for, for political interference are just not true. And we should discuss uh, those particulars as well. It is just so interesting to me. Like, does this show that Andrew Scheer was tapping into what the Canadian public was feeling when he called for the resignation if he is being attacked by Maxine Bernier, who tweeted this morning, Sheer systematically refuses to say whether he supports a DPA with SNC-Lavalin or not. Is it because he promised his support to SNC's lobbyists when he met them and doesn't want to be it's publicly that, contradicted. And first of all, and that's thought, not even true. Which Mr. Shear made it really clear yesterday, and I'm not defending him. My job is not to defend him. I'm not his press secretary. But I watched that as you were all probably glued to the TV like I was, mouth agape. Yeah. Uh, but Mr. Shear was asked that three times by Radio Canada, CBC English, and someone else. And he said, this uh, SNC, like any other company, has to meet the standard of the DPA. And it is up to the independence uh, process prosecutor to make that decision it is not for the prime minister to yeah. interfere in the law of this land. So, I mean, 
I agree with that, and I think it's it's the right thing for Sheer to say. I think the conservative record, though, is also problematic in that regard. Um, I'm loath to agree with Maxime Bernier, but I do think um, you know it's incumbent upon Jagmeet Singh and the NDP to really be asking questions about how differently the conservative a, a conservative government would have approached this. The omnibus bill that the DPA. Um, mechanism was embedded in um, was introduced by the Liberals even though they had expressly committed to not doing that, which was something that the Harper government repeatedly did. So we're, we, we've seen a pattern of uh, you know what some of us might call sort of crony capitalism, the yeah. influence that corporate Canada has on government, whether it's a conservative or liberal government, and the NDP really needs to seize that. Well, we're talking federal politics, because how can we not in light of what has happened? Now, this story originally broke on February the 8th when the Global Mail newspaper reported that the former Attorney General, former uh, Solicitor General at that point, Jody Wilson-Raybould, felt that she had been repeatedly pressured when it came to dealing with SNC-Lavalin, the giant construction company. And from there to today, it has been one thing after another. It hasn't even been a month yet. <laughs> Elise Mills and Maria Dormanskaya are with us. It does feel like a lot we longer than a month. We started last week the exact way we started it today. Yes. It feels like Groundhog Day. It does, doesn't well, it? Well, and thinking about the election is still, what, seven, eight months away. Um, and we keep, yeah, as I said earlier, it's drip, drip, drip. They haven't been able to contain the story at all. And I think part of why they haven't been able to contain it is because they don't they don't understand it. They don't understand it. They, yeah. they actually, the entitlement of, well, this is the way things are done. Hubris. Why can't you just get it? Mm-hmm. And they're they're stuck a little bit in between a rock and a hard place. And, and you know, we're, I think, increasingly hearing, we heard from Trudeau yesterday with this, like, well, this isn't what's really important. What's really important to Canadians is jobs and climate action. And so I think, you know, when you contrast that again with polling numbers where I would say a week or two ago, it maybe wasn't penetrating into sort of the general public around it being a an issue. But this this moral authority to govern that, that right. question is is really glaring. Okay, so then Elise, if you're if we are talking about an election campaign coming up in six months or whatever it's going mm-hmm. to be, if you're the opposition, then are you like do you have your platform? But are you and you hammering this or because you know they're going to be running on their platform? The liberals are saying that's a distraction. Here's what we're really all about. You, I think, as opposition, you have to be really careful that you keep this these words or these statements simple to truth to truthfully what they are. This is about deception. It's about political influence. It's about a what I've ter- coined as Quebecology in this country, which really is what runs this country. Yeah. Um, and I think the NDP would find that out very quickly, especially if they had kept the majority of their MPs in Quebec as they as as they had won in 2011. Um, I think it's something when we talk about populism and they all look at us out in the West like we're crazy, I think we need to push back and say, your influence is out of whack with how this country operates. But I think the Conservatives have um, a really important responsibility here. And one thing I was talking about with Andrew's office last night was that sincere patriotism that we all have, which is that you don't want to see political, undue political influence and abuse on especially women in caucus. And I think we have to keep Mr. Trudeau held to, to, to be held accountable to the commitments he's made to Canada. And the, the the whole SNC, the legalities around it, uh, the prosecution's office, all of that, we have to be able to separate that out because that actually has to be a conversation we have in this country more fulsomely without the right. partisanship. Okay, Maria, so collection campaign, 
what do the parties run on? Well, I mean, I think it's who do you trust, who's on your side. And, um, you know, Trudeau can say, well, the, this is not an issue. But again, this moral authority to govern the cynicism that his broken promises, you know, which again, didn't didn't start with SNC-Lavalin and stuff. I mean, we he came in on sunny ways and, and a very oh, ambitious... But they're very, sorry they ever said that. Well, it's a very, you know, it was all, again, this or is because part of why... because it's 2015. Well, yeah, I mean, and part of why this is so glaring is, yeah. is how much it contradicts his brand, you know, whether, yeah. again, whether we're talking about him as a feminist, his commitment to reconciliation, exactly, yeah. his, you know, the electoral but, reform, they're going to run, the only campaign I can see the Liberals running with Trudeau at the helm is one that's essentially based on fear. If you don't reelect us, you're going to get sheer, and he hangs out with neo-Nazis. And that's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm summarizing it, but again, you're it's thinking not, that they had already go, started that. They're going to go for the jugular. They're going to go they and, started that two, three not, weeks ago. And it's not coincidental. He's also at yeah. a climate event yesterday. Yeah. So pushing this, do you care about your children's future? Climate is an issue. And the other guy doesn't even want a carbon tax. So I think we're going to see a very simplistic, fear-based campaign that the NDP really has to cut through and say, look, we can have it better than this. We, you are struggling and not Neither of these parties are actually there to represent your interests and and here and what we could do, you know, with the balance of power, restoring integrity into our democracy. And I think Jagmeet is 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 well positioned to do that. And um, you know, but but again, what's going to erupt next week? I think it's yeah, a, it's a, a very very volatile. If I can add, very volatile political if I can environment. Add, if we're talking about Trudeau's truthful, truthfulness or truthiness, as Stephen Colbert says. I like truthiness. Um, we can also talk about his failures on his economic promises, right? His fiscal plan for this country when he ran in 2015 was one page long. And he said the middle class would be better. We now know the middle class is paying more. So when you look at the economic indicators, and we have two provinces in this country that one's in a full recession, Alberta, BC is heading into one. And then you've got national numbers that are no longer just sluggish. They are t- tilting into indicators that uh, sign yeah show to a recession. You got these provincial, very what used to be powerhouses, and then a national problem. And then you put that in the intersection of morality and values. Oh, Mr. Trudeau. I think okay. some of that plays into his protecting jobs and standing up for Canadians. Very quickly, though, I have to ask your assessment of this, this question of should they be removed from caucus or should they stay in caucus? Maria, would you boot them from oh, caucus yeah. or well, keep they, them in? They've really laid the gauntlet down. I think this move uh, basically <laughs> daring um, the, the, the party, daring Trudeau to, to kick them out is, is, is quite something. I mean, the fact that Jody Wilson-Raybould's... Um, Nomination papers have already been signed. The popularity of Philpot in her writing. And her constituency office is saying they support her. Yes. And so yeah. I think they're, again, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the fact that these women are essentially daring them to kick them out. But, you know, loyalty in, in politics runs deep. And, and a lot of, you know, people remember the sponsorship scandal. They remember the so-called days in the wilderness. And, and all of these MPs that essentially were carried into a majority government by Trudeau. And so... You know, I think it's a, it's there's some challenging times for the Liberal Party, and I think it's um, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't in no terms kidding. of keeping them in so or kicking them out. Kick so them there's two. So first of all, I want to say courage is a noun, and I'm so proud of these women. And I think it was inc- it's incredible that we're watching these two women sit in their ministerial seats, staring him down. Like, if you're gonna do it, do it. Like but daring if I, him. Yeah, if I was yeah. in the PMO, though, this is how the PMO works: is that is the centralized agency, and those two people are no longer just 
uh, road bump or speed bumps, there's stop signs. And so now I've got two people threatening my guy and they are, they, they haven't even got the right to leadership. So the strategist must be going crazy because the out that Mr. Trudeau had, he didn't take. He kept doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. Now he's got nowhere to go. And I think Jody Wilson-Rabel is very well positioned to take a run at this leadership of the party. Oh, boy. Other than she doesn't speak French. Uh, she can, she's smart. She can learn. Ladies, <laughs> we'll have to do this next week. But thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Happy Women's Day. Happy yes. Women's Day. What's That's Elise Mills. Yeah, what's that? What, what do we talk about next week? Oh, who knows? That's Elise Mills, Senior Associate at Sussex Strategy and Maria Dobrinskaya, BC Director at the Broadbent Institute. Well, let's update you on the story that we've been talking about out of Surrey the last couple of days here. Cracks are starting to show in the solidarity of the ruling party at Surrey City Hall. Remember, all but one of the councillors belong to the same party that elected Doug McCallum to the mayor's chair. And this is all over the issue of moving the city to a to its own police force. One of the councillors in question here is Councillor Jack Hundell. He's a former R- um, Surrey RCMP staff sergeant. He voted in favour of the move last fall when it first came up for a vote at Surrey City Council. But now he's saying that unless there's public consultation in this process, he's not going to support this moving forward. So let's get some more perspective on this. Joining us now is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. And yes, another shoe has dropped in this ongoing story out of Surrey. Um, as we heard yesterday morning, I had spoken with City Councillor Doug Elford, and he had told me that, uh, quote, right now, I don't foresee any public consultation in this process moving from the RCMP to a citywide police force. And that sparked a whole outflowing of reaction, uh, followed up by Councillor Linda Annis coming out and calling for a referendum. And then the Surrey Board of Trade CEO, Anita Huberman, uh, calling on the Solicitor General not to support the change and demanding an immediate meeting with him. And then last night, I uh, heard back from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, his office, his staff sent me a comment. They emailed me saying, I think public consultation is always a good way to go when there is a decision that has a large impact. It seems like a natural thing to seek public input. And he finished up by saying, I look forward to seeing Surrey's plan when they are ready to submit it. And then, as you say, we heard from City Councillor Jack Hundile and a real bombshell, him saying, unless there is indeed public consultation in this entire process, that he will not be supporting the move. And here is more of what he has to say, Simi. You've heard what Linda Annis has said about needing public consultation on the policing initiative. Do you agree with her? Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to engage the public, um, similar as we've done in Underbur, our key campaign issues. We've engaged with the public uh, on on SkyTrain. Transit's looking after that piece for us right now. Um, we're engaging the public through a newly formed public engagement committee, which would be one of the tools we could utilize uh, in this. And certainly, uh, one thing that was loud and clear throughout the campaign was uh, people are looking to have a voice at the table when it comes to public safety. And with recent discussion uh, and, and conversation uh, around, there's actually opportunities that are here now today that will be able to uh, give us the opportunity to actually let the community have a voice at the table uh, and still, uh, you know, with the RCMP and certainly keep looking at a municipal police force in the future. Were you surprised when you heard Doug Elford say that right now he doesn't foresee any public consultation? It's certainly not 
um, a, a discussion point um, that's uh, that I support, um, even before I voted on um, the move to a municipal police force, uh, I did preface that it needs to not only uh, provide some value um, in what we're going to get in the future and meet community expectations, but also uh, the public needs to be fully informed of the costing associated with it. And the question is, I guess, at what point should the public be brought into this? Should it be before the report goes to Victoria, or should it be up to the Solicitor General? Whereabouts do we fit into this? That conversation needs to be happening all the way through the process, you know, um, starting, you know, even starting back a few a few months ago. Um, you know, as we formulate a transition plan, that transition plan does need to include a form of of community consultation. Now, um, I haven't seen that report yet. I don't believe it's completed yet either. So hopefully we should be receiving that in the next, uh, next you know, three to four weeks. Okay. I've been told by Elford it's going to go to council, but at the public safety meeting. So therefore, it won't be made public, perhaps, before it goes to the Solicitor General. Would you be maybe making a motion or calling for the release of that before then? Well, I think it just, I, I would. I would definitely would. And certainly throughout in the, in the public safety committee meetings, I've often said, um, you know, we do have too many meetings in closed. Um, but certainly in this particular case, just looking at the severity and the impact of it, we do need to discuss it with the public moving on. Look, back in 1950, the last time we switched over from Surrey Police to the RCMP, it was done with a plebiscite. Now, I'm certainly not saying we go back into a plebiscite on it, um, but we do need to engage the public because the public, at the end of the day, this is the public's police. That is Jack Hundell, who's a Surrey City Councillor, talking about this whole process. Janet, I find this um, so fascinating because we still haven't heard from Doug McCallum, the mayor, on this, even though it's been, what, more than 24 hours now that you've tried to get a hold of him and we've tried to get a hold of him. Let me uh, talk about that for a few minutes, Timmy. Yes, <laughs> I mean, that's the key person we need to hear from. It's the mayor. He is driving this. I reached out to his assistant in his office, Oliver Lum, who deals with the media and does communications. I reached out to Mr. Lum four times yesterday. And uh, let me read some of the comments that I got back. Okay. In the end, at the end of the day yesterday, I still had not heard from him. At 12.23, I heard from Mr. Lum. He said, sorry, no, I have not had a chance to chat with the mayor. He is still in a meeting. Uh, then last night, I uh, continued to be in touch with uh, Mr. Lum. I said, uh, the mayor has not called me today. Very disappointing. Please let him know. I'm expecting a call from him after 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning. That was at 8.38 uh, 8 last night. I did not get a response. I emailed him again this morning at 7.05 a.m., I said, I am still waiting to hear from the mayor. Please call me. Please email me. I have heard nothing. And since then, Simi, I have uh, phoned Oliver, Mr. Lum, three more times this morning, and I have oh. still not heard. What I don't understand. What is the problem? Why is the mayor not contacting me? Exactly. We've made a couple calls ourselves asking for some comment on this. What I don't understand about this, this is a very simple fix. I mean, this is, sure, okay, we'll make the report public before we submit it to the provincial government. And they still won't even commit to that. 
This is a very serious issue, Simi. I mean, because at the end of the day, Surrey taxpayers are facing an increase on their tax bill to pay for a move from the RCMP to a municipal force. That is something the mayor has said from day one in his campaign up to most recently. He said it's probably going to be at least a 10% increase. I've gone back, looked at my notes. That is what he is on the record for saying. So people need to hear from him. Are you still in support of moving to a municipal force? Will there be public consultation? Because as I say, people need to know what's happening here and how it's going to affect them at the end of the day, the bottom line. Because as we know, a lot of people in Metro Vancouver in this region are struggling paycheck to paycheck. How much more is this move going to cost them? And I think, personally, I think everybody else out there, that the information needs to be put on the table so that the public can make an informed decision along with the city councillors. Okay, so then what happens next here? Is this just now a waiting game to hear if the mayor will say, yeah, okay, we'll make this public? We are waiting to hear from the mayor. And actually, Simi, would you believe as we were talking, it looked like Mr. Lum was phoning me. So perhaps he's listening. His number just popped up on my screen there. Uh, So hopefully we will hear from the mayor today. Uh, If I have to go to City Hall and wait for him, I will. Uh, In terms of this whole process, uh, the report that is being written by Surrey's uh, transmission, uh, transition, transition, pardon me, policing executive, the report that's going to going to the uh, Solicitor General, that is to be ready in uh, four to six weeks. Uh, apparently, they're they're hoping for the end of March. Now, will uh, Mr. Farnworth release that to the public? Will it ever be made public at all? I, I'm thinking it must, it will have to be at some point in time. But right now, we don't even know that for sure. So, uh, we need to hear from the mayor first and yeah. foremost, and then uh, maybe others on city council too, and then maybe Mr. Farnworth. So uh, it's wait and see what happens really right now. All right, Janet, we're going to let you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Go answer your phone because I have a feeling that it's probably ringing off the hook on that one. So, Janet, thanks very much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. That's Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, talking about the situation in Surrey. This next story is about the kind of news that we didn't even think was possible 20 years ago. If you had said back then that we might, just might, be able to cure someone completely of HIV and AIDS, I'm sure researchers all over the world would have said, you've got to be kidding me. But that is what we're hearing about. Researchers now say that a man in London appears to be free of the HIV AIDS virus after a stem cell transplant. And this is the second time they have had success with a technique like this. So there are some like, you know, uh, caveats to this. But is this possible that we could actually cure people of this? We wanted to talk more about this now. So Dr. Sabrina Brume joins us, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University and the Director of Laboratories at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV AIDS. Dr. Brume, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. Like, what did you think when you heard about this? Yeah, so this uh, this study was 
just presented 15 minutes ago uh, at the conference to an extremely uh, large audience. Um, and this is great news. This is great news from the field, and it was uh, the news was was welcomed by many uh, as an important, uh, very very important step forward. And so, what are the caveats here? How did they manage to do this? Yeah, so the uh, so this is the second um, case of HIV cure, or in this case, it's being conservatively called uh, HIV remission, and it was achieved by a very um, a dangerous procedure of a bone marrow transplantation um, where the bone marrow donor um, had a very rare but naturally occurring mutation in a human gene called the the CCR5 gene. This gene encodes for the cellular receptor that allows the virus to infect cells in the human body. Um, And it's very important in this particular case um, this procedure of bone marrow transplantation was not explicitly done to try to cure HIV in the London patient, uh, nor the patient who was uh, cured before this. In both of these cases, these men had HIV, but they also developed a kind of a blood cancer, and their blood cancers were refractive to all other types of treatment. Uh, and the only option available to them uh, to treat the blood cancer was the bone marrow transplantation. It's kind of the last resort uh, uh, dangerous treatment that right. one would try. The fatality rate is quite high. So the procedure was actually done to treat the, the blood cancer. Uh, but in both cases, doctors were able to find a bone marrow donor who's not only uh, a correct match uh, for for the bone marrow, but also was from a donor who had this rare mutation. And the idea was, can we treat uh, and cure the bone cancer, uh, excuse me, the blood cancer, and at the same time also potentially get rid of HIV. That's uh, and it, it now appears that in two cases, it has been done. That's amazing. That is absolutely yeah. amazing. You mentioned, though, like HIV remission. So does that mean that the viral load has been eliminated or is it undetectable or is it gone? Yes, currently, currently that means that the viral load is undetectable. Um, uh, however, um, the researchers who just presented the London case are a little bit hesitant yet to call this a complete cure. Uh, this is because in order to completely cure HIV, what's actually necessary is to eliminate pretty much every last copy of replication-competent HIV from, from the human body. Uh, HIV is uh, able to uh, establish kind of a state of dormancy where it can yeah. hide for long periods and then only to reactivate later. So scientists are being quite cautious. They've exhaustively tested the blood for the presence of HIV, can't find any, uh, but you can't rule out, I mean, you can't sample the entire body. So one can't rule out the presence of HIV that is laying dormant somewhere. Um, so probably a couple more years right. have to go by before before scientists are calling it a cure, but they're definitely calling HIV remission because uh, the patient in question discontinued uh, their HIV medications in September 2017 and had 18 months of completely inability to detect HIV in their body for the last uh, for the last 18 months. So it's definitely a case of uh, HIV remission. Right, because in the past we have had other cases, right, where the viral load kind of falls below detectable limits, but that doesn't mean that HIV is gone. 
Correct. So, uh, so this is a case where so we, you have indeed have the case where uh, people have uh, discontinued their HIV medication, and then surprisingly, the virus has not come back right away. Some cases, there's been cases um, of, of sort of naturally occurring suppression that has occurred after a while. Um, but in all those cases, the virus eventually comes back. Um, so that's that's why in this particular case, even though this was achieved via a bone marrow transplant with, you know, you know, reconstitution with an immune system that should be resistant to HIV, uh, scientists are still being cautious and using the words HIV remission uh, until this can be confirmed as more time goes by. Right. So, Dr. Rubey, like, what is the rate like for new cases of HIV? It, like, you know, for a long time, it was a huge concern and then it kind of really slowed down. But what's it like now? Uh, the new uh, newly diagnosed cases of HIV globally? Yes. Um, uh, well, I wish it were lower, but... Uh, just under 2 million new infections per year around the world still. So HIV is still a public health issue. There are still uh, new infections occurring every day around the world. Um, there is still no vaccine, still no cure. Um, the big breakthroughs uh, and advances that have been made in HIV are in the area of treatment as well as prevention. We now have drugs that will um, help HIV-infected people live long, healthy, uh, normal lives. Um, and the same drugs can be used to prevent HIV in, in, in the folks that might be high risk of, uh, of acquiring it. So HIV is, even though we don't hear about it as often as we did, say, 10, 20 years ago, it's still around. People are getting infected, and it's as important as ever to know your status. Uh, and if you are HIV positive, to seek care uh, and, and, and begin, uh, begin treatment. This will help you live a normal life and also make it so that uh, HIV can't be transmitted to others. Still so important to talk about it. Dr. Brume, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Sabrina Brume, who's an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. What next? That is the question I keep hearing when it comes to the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Every time there's a quiet day or two, we think, oh, okay, so this is the narrative now. Something else happened, like yesterday, where right around this time we were learning the bombshell news that the Treasury Board President, Jane Philpott, had also submitted her resignation, saying that she just couldn't stay there in Cabinet anymore, given the things that she had seen and heard and couldn't support what was happening. That was a bombshell. So how is this going over in Ottawa? How is the Prime Minister reacting? Let's get an update on that now with the help of David Aiken, who's our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Hi, David. Hello, Simeon. Well, as you heard uh, on the news, Prime Minister Trudeau was to be in Regina. He is already back here in Ottawa. He had an event in Toronto this morning, a mining industry event, and then he flew right back here to Ottawa, where he is huddled with um, his top advisors. Um, the what they, they have a couple of things they have to do. Yeah. There's definitely a political crisis that they're dealing with, but they also have to find a new cabinet minister because uh, Jane Philpott held an important job uh, in the federal government, the president of the Treasury Board. Um, this is sort of the gatekeeper organization, the Treasury Board for spending and rules about spending. As I say, it's an important job. So uh, he needs to find uh, someone who can do the job until uh, the next federal election. Right now, it's temporarily being done by Carla Qualtra, the MP from uh, Delta, who is uh, also the public services minister. So I think it's quite appropriate. Uh, he's got he's got higher priority things to do right here in Ottawa. So he's just a couple blocks away. Now, David, was the cabinet, were cabinet members, were caucus members, were they surprised by that resignation yesterday? I think so. I mean, that's what we're hearing. And the prime minister himself is sort of giving conflicting accounts. 
last night there was a rally in Toronto where he spoke, a rally for liberals. It was a fundraiser. And he said that he had known for some time, I think was his phrase, that Minister Philpott or Jane Philpott uh, was feeling the way she was feeling. And yet today there's indications uh, from the people around him that he was caught off guard. So we're not sure. Definitely the caucus uh, is surprised uh, by this. Although, in retrospect, there were some hints because when Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, resigned from Cabinet, uh, Minister Philpott was one of the very few MPs and the only Cabinet minister to essentially express support and appreciation for the work that uh, Wilson-Raybould had done. And so uh, so I guess, it, as I say, in retrospect, you can see that that connection. But there was a Cabinet shuffle in Ottawa last week on Friday, and there have been Cabinet meetings since Wilson-Raybould quit so, you know, it's it's been a couple of weeks that Phil Pot has, has had a chance to consider how this whole thing has uh, unfolded. Right. Okay. Now, tomorrow we could expect this narrative to change again, right? Yes. I don't suppose – my guess right now is it won't change much. In other words, the basic facts of the case could – because what we're really arguing, I suppose, about now – is the interpretation. So when Jody Wilson-Raybould gave her testimony in front of the Commons Justice Committee, she laid out a series of conversations she had with the Prime Minister, she had with the Chief of the Privy Council, and she had with the Prime Minister's Principal Secretary, Gerald Butts. Um, no one has challenged Wilson-Raybould on the facts that she presented, that, you know, I spoke right. to somebody on this date, and we discussed this. It's all interpretation. So tomorrow, Gerald Butts is testifying. And remember, Butts uh, quit uh, the PMO, the, you know, is yeah. right there is one of the most powerful guys in the country. Uh, he quit but said he did nothing wrong. So I expect a couple of things tomorrow from him. First, um, the opposition member is going to want to know, why did you quit uh, if you didn't do anything wrong? And uh, and then we'll see what the Liberal MPs, how they approach questioning butts. Presumably they will go to, why shouldn't we interpret uh, the events the way Jody Wilson-Raybould thinks we ought to? And it'll be interesting to see uh, Butts' response. Butts helped recruit Jody Wilson-Raybould. In his, in his letter res resigning, he had nothing to praise for her. I uh, think uh, she's a terrific person, terrific individual. So I, I don't expect to see, you know, Butts versus Wilson-Raybould. I expect it will be professional and respectful. Uh, but nonetheless, quite clearly, Butts has a different view of how the events ought to be interpreted. Right. I noticed that one of the things that you tweeted this morning as well had to do with it looks like the constituency association at the Vancouver Granville riding is is fully behind Jody Wilson-Raybould on this. And we shouldn't be surprised. Typically, constituency associations are essentially led by people who are very close to the the candidate. That's uh, that would be an, an unremarkable thing. I would say that goes uh, right across the board, except in cases where, let's say, there's been somebody who's, you know, crossed the floor or something like that. And obviously, yeah. Jody Wilson-Raybould has always indicated she wants to remain a Liberal MP. She's ready to run next fall as a Liberal candidate in Vancouver, Granville. That issue is still to be decided by the Prime Minister. As the leader of the party, he'll have the last say. Who gets to run for the Liberals in Vancouver, Granville, no matter what Wilson-Raybould says. Right. And what about this issue of whether or not Jody Wilson-Raybould and I guess now Jane Philpott as well stay in caucus? The Prime Minister hasn't, like he's been saying, oh yeah, we're still deciding that. But now what do you do? Do you kick both of them out of caucus? It, it seems to me you'd have to. And so my sense is that with Philpott's action, uh, vastly increases the odds that Wilson-Raybould will stay in caucus. And to be honest... 
you know, the caucus is a bit divided on this. I mean, it's, it's really, we can't do a poll, obviously, but I would say it's about one-third of caucus members are unhappy that Wilson-Raybould is in caucus. It feels she should be removed. Then there's about one-third who are very sympathetic uh, to Wilson-Raybould, feel she has been uh, inappropriately treated by the PMO and his advisors. And then I'd say the other third just want this to go away. You know, they know that this is just hurting their brand. It's hurting their chances for re-election. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm not sure how the prime minister is going to weigh this, but it is up to him to decide if both of those individuals stay in caucus. My sense is he's missed the chance to kick Wilson-Raybould out, and he would have some significant caucus trouble should he do that at this point. I think he's got to find a different solution to sort of have some peace. Yeah. in the liberal tent right now. Yeah, do you get the sense that's happening? I've been kind of reading a little bit about that, and there's some speculation that we're going to hear a change in tone, perhaps, in the days ahead from the Prime Minister. Yeah, and we started to see a little bit of change in tone again last night at this rally in uh, Toronto, in which uh, he talked about, uh, he sort of hinted at sort of thinking about how he and his senior officials treated Wilson-Raybould and dealt with the issue. But here's the thing. And, uh, you know, a few sort of pundits have pointed this out, and it, I'm, not, I'm not the only uh, one uh, sort of saying this, is last night Trudeau said, you know, sorry that Philpott left cabinet, but liberals, we have to think of the big picture. And f- the big picture is that's, that's just what Wilson-Raybould was told. You know, hey, Jody, you gotta, you got to give this thing to SNC-Lavalin. Think of the big picture. And what is the big picture? Getting liberals elected. And Jane Philpott, quite clearly unequivocally, unambiguously, in her resignation statement, said, no, 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 no. The, the number one thing at stake here is, the, is in the integrity of our justice system. That's the big picture, Prime Minister, not doing politics the same old, same old way. I mean, because remember, Justin Trudeau was elected to do politics differently, yeah. and now two female cabinet ministers have concluded, no, you're not doing it differently. You're doing it like every other PM that gets in a little trouble is doing it. Interesting days ahead. All right, David, thank you. Thanks, Emmy. Cheers. That is David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Well, police need your help. They need more information about this hit and run that happened yesterday over the lunch hour in Burnaby. Remember, we were telling you about this. Two police officers were hit. One of those officers is now home and recovering. But for the other officer, it's going to be a long road to get home and to that spot. Let's get an update on this case now and find out what police are looking for. Uh, Grace Key, Global News reporter, joins us for more on this. Hi, Grace. Hi, yeah, certainly some good news that came out of Abbotsford Police Department. They did say one of their own, Corporal Aaron Courtney, uh, has been released from hospital. He is back home recovering, 15-year officer, uh, 10-year member of the Lower Mainland District Integrated Police Dog Services. So he is back home, but as you mentioned, there is another RCMP officer who does uh, remain in hospital, and it's unclear uh, when that officer is going to be released. Okay, so Grace, what do we know right now about what happened yesterday? So from what we understand, it all began as a report that came in of possibly an impaired driver. So that would have involved the white Toyota Camry that we saw. So an officer had spotted that vehicle. It was just, uh, again, along uh, sort of Burn and Marine Way area there at about 1130. Uh, That car quickly sort of took off and started going into oncoming traffic. There was no pursuit that took place. But then that vehicle did eventually uh, make its way nearby to the uh, collision scene where uh, they struck the, this driver struck the two officers. So from what we're hearing from witnesses, 
it was trying to overtake uh, a semi. This is an industrial area, so you know, not, not a lot of traffic in this area. Uh, trying to overtake a semi. Instead of passing it on the left, it was passing the semi on the right. Oh. So it was trying to pinch its way in between the semi and the parked vehicles. So these two officers are actually part of the um, the Integrated Police Dog Services, and they were just sort of standing in front of their dog, uh, canine police truck, and they, they're in that area frequently just to train, so they just happened to be in that area. And when this white car whizzed by, striking the two officers. So, so hmm. that's how it all began. And then a short time later, that white... Uh, Toyota Camry was spotted nearby, abandoned in a dead-end street. So they are looking for the driver right now. The car was also reported stolen. So Ah. they're asking for people with any possible uh, dash cam video who happen to be in that South Burnaby area, just the North Fraser Marine Drive area. If you were in that area between, again, 11.30, 1 o'clock around there yesterday, and you think you've spotted something, a Toyota Camry, and it also has very distinct, they said, very tinted windows. So that's why they also don't know if there were, you know, more than one person in that vehicle because it was so dark. Okay, so they have no descriptions of a suspect at all, it sounds like. No, they don't. And it doesn't even sound like they're 100% if it was a male you know, or female at this point either. Okay, so then all they know is they've got this white Toyota Camry, which they now have in custody. So what are they looking for? Like surveillance video, dash cam video, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Any surveillance video, any dash cam video that people could have. Um, you know, obviously they're going to be going to businesses around the area and seeing it, what type of video uh, they could possibly have as well. Okay, it's not, this sounds like a particularly pretty bad accident involving police officers, Grace. Like we don't hear about this very often. You know, and especially they were, you know, they're just, they just happened to be there. They weren't, you know, responding to this uh, impaired driving call that came out. They were just out there training their dogs. And, um, you know, we had video, of course, uh, from a witness who uh, was there right when it happened. I mean, he witnessed the whole thing and he he, uh, shared some of that video with us. And it's just, it's so hard to watch. Obviously, we didn't air all of it. Um, But, you know, you're amazed after you've seen this that one of the officers was able to go home at all. Excuse me. So, um, you know, it's great news there that one of the officers was able to do that. But obviously everyone thinking about the the other RCMP officer there. Yes. Still in hospital. Sounds like it. All right. Well, thank you so much for the update on that, Grace. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. That is Grace Key, Global News Reporter.